Dotnet Rocks episode 788 with guest John McCoy. Recorded live Thursday, June 7th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard at the Fishbowl, NDC, Oslo, Norway. And this is day two for us. Indeed, indeed. And uh, are you jet lagged still? No, I got over jet lag very quickly. Um, just the combination of sleep and melatonin. Yeah, and a healthy dose of scotch last night, as I recall. Yeah, I was already acclimated by then, though. But man, that was some somebody who shall remain nameless convinced me to do a scotch tasting last night. Eight scotches in, we finally left the bar. Those were good scotches, though. I've never, never had a better series of scotches. Yeah, we got, we walked through very nicely and denially, of course. Yeah, big smoky stuff. Anyway, this isn't the Scotch show; it's a .NET show. Somebody suggested we do a Scotch podcast, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> that would be bad. Uh, I couldn't do it. I don't know enough. You probably do. Uh, all I know is if you ever listen to Mondays, we drink Scotch through the course of that show, and you're generally impaired by the end of it. Yeah. All right. So let's jump into Better Know Framework. All right. What do you got? Well, today I want to revisit a uh, a topic near and dear to my heart, which is fundamental to .NET programming, but a lot of .NET programmers probably don't know about this. It's the app domain. The app domain, uh, you know what a process is, right? Sure. All right. A Windows process is a context in which all memory is accessed for an application that runs in that process, and uh, it provides protection from other processes and other applications. So it's this nice little uh, piece of the operating system that your application resides in where it does not have easy access to other applications and other processes. Okay. Yeah. So an app domain is to uh, a .NET application what a process is to a Windows application. So inside of a process, an app domain loads up and your .NET application runs inside the context of that app domain. So it's sort of like a soft process. And all of the 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 stuff that happens with the CLR and and uh, all of the, the .NET framework goo happens within that app domain. So all the CLR DLLs get loaded up in that app domain. And you can actually spin up other copies of your application and even other app domains from an app domain. And uh, this is the way that you can replace uh, programs that are actually running in memory while they're running. So uh, I'm sure John's over there nodding his head. He's going to jump in here in a minute. But... But the app domain is sort of critical to understanding the memory structure of .NET, and so I wanted to just revisit it. And if you have questions, there's lots of old posts from 10 years ago, even, on app domains, because that's when we were introduced to them uh, through .NET 1.0. So, Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 735. That's the one we did on uh, security in uh, ASP.NET with Troy Hunt just a while ago. This comment was from Clarence Klopstein, who said, I'm listening to the show now, and I love the comment about creating a separate site for administrative parts of a website. I've worked on several large projects, and we had this by default due to the completely different focus of the sites. However, for some personal projects, I never took this into account as a security mechanism, so thanks. Now I have more work to do. Ah, Very nice. Well, maybe a good .NET Rocks mug will make you feel better about that, Clarence. So it's on its way to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the site at .netrocks.com. And before we introduce John, i got to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and people that appear on this show. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month. They have a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access to their vast library. And Topics include iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. And with that, I'd like to introduce our guest. John McCoy is a .NET software engineer that focuses on security and forensics. He's worked on a number of open source projects, ranging from hacking tools to software for paralyzed people. Welcome, John. Hey, nice to be here. 
And uh, so this show is called uh, John McCoy Hacks.net Application. So you've really made uh, quite a name for yourself discovering what's inside uh, what's inside an app domain and in particular an application and how to how to read what's going on in there. Yeah, and taking that to the next level and make it easily malleable. Yeah. Easily malleable. In other words, change it. Yeah. Yeah. Read, change, find, search, replace. So what is the what's the number one use case that you can or let's say the use case for for good, for the powers of good? Okay. So I came from a classical development engineering background. Yep. And if you wanted to use an API and part of that API was private or you couldn't get to some variable inside of that API mm -hmm. DLL somewhere, mm -hmm. you can. You can go and make an entire executable or DLL public and then just import it into your project and use it. Um, uh, say that one more time. You can make a DLL public? Uh, DLL or ex executables and DLLs in .NET are the same. In other words, something that's loaded in memory, you can save to a file? I'm not sure if I'm following like, you. You can go up to an executable on disk or a DLL on disk okay. and make the entire thing public and then reference it in your Visual Studios project. Oh, even though it's a private DLL? Um, well, you just go through and change all of where that little ones and zeros says private to say public. Ah, okay. And I wrote some tools to make that easy. Nice. So basically, we run this tool and convert anything into a set of public classes. Yeah. And, and, but I mean, this is, this is after years of research. Like originally in .NET, there is no real public or private. Like right. private means you have to ask. Sure. <laughs> you literally just spin up reflection and you're like, I would like all of your functions, but the non-public ones. Right. And then you get all the functions and you can fire them or variables and subclasses. You just have to ask through reflection. Like, so, so what you're saying is uh, not only can you reflect over these things, but then functions that are private, you can call them yourself by flipping a bit. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then imported Visual Studios. You got your IntelliSense and it's nice. And so typically, you know, when I make functions private, it's not usually because I want to, you know, hide some functionality from the developer. It's just that it's usually something that's so specific to what I'm doing in my tools that uh, there's no real need to expose it. But you also don't, when you make an executable that's a core of a project, you also don't consider someone else wanting to use that as an API. Right. Like you, someone else wants to bootstrap what you've done and then use you as a library. Right. But and someone else might want to. Oh, maybe I don't want them to. I facilitate them in having more power. <laughs> So now we get back to the powers of bad, powers of evil. He's just here to help. <laughs> I do consulting to help people harden their apps. <laughs> okay. So there is the antidote for this, of course. I Antidote is a big word, but you can definitely build a more defensible structure that can slow people down. I know what uh, the boundaries are and where mm -hmm. you can hide and where you can put stuff. Do obfuscators challenge you um, at all? There's... There's a fair community effort going on to collaboratively de-obfuscate all the obfuscators. De-obfuscate all the obfuscators. Okay. So maybe we got to go start over here a little bit and say, well, what does an obfuscator really do that sure. you can undo? Um, the one thing that most people don't know about obfuscators is they're going to affect your privates. They're not going to affect your publics because then huh. that would break interfaces because they're public. Well, they'll rename them. Mm. Oh. If you rename all of your publics and someone's using that as a yeah. endpoint, it breaks it. Oh, sure. And so you can't. Well, you can, but you shouldn't. Um, they don't do your publics. So what they'll typically do is go through, find all of your strings, put them in a, a through a function to reference into a resource. They'll encrypt that resource against mm -hmm. a, a key. They'll hide the key. And right. So this op to obfuscate means to hide. So what they'll do mm -hmm. is they'll shuffle things around so... When you're looking at it with Reflector or some some other tool mm -hmm. uh, that you you really can't make sense of it, pretty much. But tools can still. Oh well, you can think of it as anything you can do programmatically. You can undo programmatically. Sure. And they work on a very known basis and say publish all of their. But they do take stuff out, like names of functions and variables and things like that. So you wouldn't yeah. necessarily know what these functions do by their name. Well, but yes. you would be able to call them. Uh, a lot of them will go and put in unprintable characters, and they'll try and make it human hard to read. Right. First step is put in printable characters. Yeah. But 
I'm from the forensics background, and there is so much metadata in .NET that people don't know about. Yeah. And so you can recover sometimes 10, sometimes 80% of the well-named uh, functions. Yeah. Because there's metadata just laying all around. So even though technically the name's been removed, because all, all the metadata's been removed, you, you yeah. still get it back. Yeah. And I'm sure the obfuscators will start at some point removing the metadata, hint, hint. Well, I also wonder if... I ask folks these days, are you using obfuscation? And most people aren't. Like, they're just no. not worried about this. Yeah. Like, how, how big of a deal is this, really? Right. Um, it's it's like antivirus. Like, the moment everyone uses it is the moment it gets broken. Right. And it, the way I feel about it is the same way I feel about people stealing Wi-Fi. <laughs> like, you know, I leave my passwords open and secure my computers. Because yeah. I figure if somebody's camping out in the woods behind my house... You know, wanting to get an internet connection. More power to you, buddy. You they, go for it. They shouldn't have to web crack just to get internet. Yeah. So, um, so it's the same way I feel about it. I, you know, I, I don't, you know, whatever. I think that if somebody's going to go to all that trouble to use my executable as an API, you know, as long as they're not repackaging it and selling it, which makes them a target then uh, I don't worry about it. And I, I completely agree. Like, if you build a defensible infrastructure and someone can't SQL inject your server, right? and your application gets taken over, then they can't SQL inject your server. Right. If they can SQL inject it, then you built a bad architecture. Right. You have a problem with the SQL server. Yeah. Defend your servers. Mm -hmm. And is that really what we're after here, is just how do we build apps that... Um, can't be it can't be used to commit crime essentially to steal um i <laughs> i think about apps as like people think about networks and computers mm -hmm. like if you can take over this app sure but how do we mitigate you from taking over the other apps right and pivoting and pivoting and so when you build your system it make it layered defense like we do for a network mm-hmm you talk about SQL ejection because that's uh, an obvious vector for you know manipulating a website or, or actually committing some kind of theft. Yeah, and it's one of the few commonality points between desktop and web mm -hmm. security. You can easily talk to any developer and say, have you done SQL cleaning? And if they haven't, then they're vulnerable. Right. And um, because when you when when I typically meet a client or a developer then it's, do you do web security? Do you do network security? And this idea of desktop security is not quite such an area. Like, we're considering mobile security. Right. And the difference between mobile and desktop security is... Pretty minimal these yeah. days. I mean, and kernels are more or less the same. And when you talk about the number of applications that are critical on your desktop versus mm -hmm. mobile, and mobile's critical... I, yeah. I mean, you do your bookkeeping. And is it secured? Like... Is there a layered defense architecture for your bookkeeping software? I guess the question, and then we get back to the real issue, which is the layered defense part. First, I need a vector to to get an exploiting piece of software onto my machine. Oh yeah, and and um, the commute. I have been uh, happy enough to supply a, a .NET vector integration with Metasploit, mm -hmm. and I I'll get back on the project, but I was branding it .NET Exploit, right? And um, basically bringing uh, you find the arbitrary hole, and then bookkeeping software. And you, and you can do what you want at that point, basically. Go through, pull the data, and send it where you want to go. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how would you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where JustCode is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features JustCode offers and download a trial at Telerik.com slash JustCode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I get that .NET's not very protected, like it's vulnerable. 
but you no. still have to get on the machine and yeah. get the data off the machine. No, no, but that layered defense model, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so your bookkeeping software, say someone did a really bad architecture and they're um, storing part of your bookkeeping software up in the cloud for you. Right. Did they do SQL cleaning? I guess it's a fair question. And and when you talk to developers, like how many desktop developers go through security training or how many developers do security unit tests? Yeah. Oh. I mean, it's it's just not in our paradigm. And that's kind of why I'm out here, because I don't want the same SCADA thing to happen in 20 years. Oh, we should have done security. Right. Yeah, we should have, we, we should have dealt with that. Well, bit by bit, we're starting to have more conversations around designing security in the first place. I'm trying. Yeah, this is your conversation. So you also t- tell developers how to harden their applications against people like you. Can you show somebody how to harden their app so that even you can't figure it out? Um. I've been asked that question a lot. Um, my typical response is, I can show you how to harden it so I can't get in, but mm-hmm. me in six months can probably get in. Okay. And I can definitely show you how to harden an app so me six months ago definitely can't get in. Okay. And I'm better than most other people at this, so if I'm better than them, hopefully. And more modest, too. <laughs> I try. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about specifics. Let's talk about... The things that you can do and how to harden yourself against them. I sell that. You do? Yeah. So I thought you said your tools are free. Oh, they are. But the. So your hacking tools are free. Your hardening tools are not. Yes. I, I got I, it. I give away the bullets for free. The body armor costs money. Uh, I see. Yeah. So here, have a gun. You're Everyone basically a digital crack dealer. <laughs> and, and I do make it extraordinarily easy to build cracks in 15, 20 minutes. And so right. if you want crack, yes, I could be your crack so dealer. So can you, can you give us. Anything in terms of advice to harden an app, um, general? Uh, you can take pretty much the OWASP top tw- 10 and consider that. Um, the what? OWASP uh, top 10. OWASP. Yeah. Um, they're an international organization for web and desktop application Is security. OASP? OWASP. Yeah. OWASP. And um, they have a top 10 SQL. It's targeted at the web. And okay. I'm trying to get more and more on desktop vulnerabilities. Right. So the community can start coming up and mitigating that across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sure, do SQL cleaning. Um, basically, layer defense. If you consider that your application can go into a malware state and not like, okay, if some elite hacker that we're going to edge case and we don't care, <clears throat> then we're just going to ignore it. But but actually consider like layer defense, um, defend all of your services, and, and try and make it so someone can't pivot through your system. Um, but more just if you consider it in the beginning and try and bake it in, um, hire pen testers when you think it's secure, um, go treat it like a website or something else that you care about and uh, put some time and money. And ultimately, this is where I'm trying to move the entire community forward, because if you go to your boss and you say, I need two more weeks and X number of dollars to harden this, he's going to say, no, there's no reason. I don't see how this this is even applicable. But if there's live attacks out there and you're seeing your competitor is getting 300 attacks a month of a certain ilk, then you might start mitigating that. And as this becomes more of a vector, um, like malware in .NET is new. Like you go back two, three, four years ago, it was basically one in the lab. And now we're I'm finding them on the Internet yeah, every sure. few months. Do you know about um, preemptive tools for instrumenting your code so that they can you can put that in there and basically it'll phone home if something changes. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so that's a, a good way to monitor how hacked your application is. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of these tools that um, supply additional security features mm-hmm. also every now and then open up new vectors and like right. it's a fairly hardened tool, but then they added in this phone home mechanism or this um, pull down a new update mechanism. Right. And every now and then in my classes, when I'm teaching people how to, uh, first I'll teach people how to defend an application, then how to attack it, beat those defenses, right. then how to defend, and so on and so forth in that mm-hmm. iterative pattern. And one of the things that's really nice to go after is the phone home mechanisms. Yeah. Um, some. Because it's sort of a red flag, right? You see the network traffic. Well, there's like three different attacks you can do against that. Like, mm-hmm. um, the easy one, um, is A, is the phone home software itself vulnerable? Like, right. can you attack the defenders? Right. Easy first start. And then... And then can you create an, a server? Can you reroute it to your 
and server. Then, and then think about this vulnerability. If you are, if you have a firewall and you have a network and mm-hmm. you have to let it phone home mm-hmm. and I can take over that piece of software, I now have a guaranteed exfiltration point. Yeah. And yeah, one of your biggest challenges is getting the data out. So yeah. let another app take responsibility for getting your permission for you to get out. And, and then it's like, oh, I'm going to encrypt a little bit of traffic and send it home. Right. And yeah, and it, I'll put it at the same pattern. It'll have the same flow. It'll same, have the same signature. You'll ignore it in your logs. Mm-hmm. And, that's right. Yeah. And, and that's where it's like this defensible, like we don't consider attackers. And I'm trying to bring that up. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk about some more, uh, some more vectors that you can use to attack an application. Sure. Um, the common one that affects businesses is just pure intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of businesses will start doing code dongles or they'll do some sort of authentication dongle. Right. And then looking at, for lack of a better word, how do you, like, if I take over your network and your enterprise, you can wipe your enterprise and clean it. Mm-hmm. And some of the, like, next generation level attacks is, like, how do you clean your code dongles? Right. And how do you stop me from infecting the things that you don't control that are security related? Sure. And... And it's actually kind of funny that most of the really, really high security things are themselves additional threat vectors. Yeah, I mean, dongles are an expensive way to protect software. They're generally considered pretty effective. No, no, I'm saying, well, unfortunately, they're not. You're saying they're, they may be effective, but they can also be become a threat vulnerabil- vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they are effective. Like a lot of code dongles, I'll see like, did code dongle signing work? Right. And did it talk to the server, return true or false? Yeah. And it's like, okay, it returns true all the time now. So you'll set it to false or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll set it to win. Yeah. And yeah. and but but then it's like, oh, can I can I infect your code dongle to attack you? So you wipe your entire enterprise, you clean me out, you put in new servers and routers, right. and then you plug your code dongle in and I'm in again. Yeah, right. And and then it's phoning home, and I'm exfiltrating data, and you're reinfected from day zero. Because dongles generally these days are USB, and USB's got all kinds of capabilities above and beyond just giving them the encryption key. And how many AVs are scanning their code dongles? Yeah, I mean, good point. Like we don't even think about the we, we think of dongles as a static device, and they're, yeah. they're not. And and that's why I'm more in the pin testing area for networks, blah blah blah, security, but desktop apps as well. So what do you mean by pin testing? I will put on the black hat and be like, you're vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerable. Here's how you can mitigate it. Here's the choices you should make. Mm-hmm. Here's the uh, threats that you should consider. And do you want to risk it? That's fine. But I'll put on the black hat and help you. What does that mean exactly? Um, basically think as an attacker. I'll, oh, okay. uh, look at your, your dongles and, and a developer won't think, oh, I can put malicious software on this and exfiltrate. Right. Or, but, as an attacker, it's like, okay, your, um, your, uh, servers go to sleep at this time for a maintenance backup. What can I do to devastate? And then we can basically do a mitigation plan or a recovery disaster plan for that or, or whatever. Like it's a pen test. It's mm-hmm. just in the classical sense of a network, but your entire software infrastructure. Do you also, um, do you also analyze malware and how it works? You must. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. uh, uh, what do they call those rootkit viruses, yeah. which tend to be seriously heinous. Well, and that's how do those work? Um, r- really easily. I, I mean, when when you look at the stuff that I'm doing, and you compare it against assembly code and these old rootkits, like you can churn out two megabytes of rootkit in a week or a month, mm-hmm. and two megabytes of a rootkit is giant and deadly. And I'm I'm basically showing that this threat vector that's really clever and heinous and destructive is now in the hands of a second year college student. And with that rudimentary skill, he can make an encrypted unpacker and he can use a TCP lookup and he can iterate your stack with just two lines of code that in assembly code would have been six months of work. He can now make polymorphic programs that are just easy to build and easy to deploy and I don't know. Um, in short, it's, it's, most of them are pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's 30 lines of code that actually mattered surrounding by 300 lines of code that doesn't matter. And in .NET, it takes maybe 16 hours to write something that you would consider very deadly and heinous and no intense skill. 
just got to know the mechanisms for uh, for taking advantage of it. Well, yeah, if you are able to walk the stack and trace someone's data that's coming in and then mm-hmm. go and attack that, you're able to do that in 15 lines with no yeah. expert knowledge. Yeah. But it still seems like it's specific to the individual applications. I mean, it must be fairly challenging to build something very general that can go at any at .NET app and figure out what the capabilities of that app are and then be able to exploit them. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends on your target. Like, mm-hmm. one of my things that I'm trying to generalize that um, is a brute forcer mm-hmm. that will walk the program and find the um, hash value of your password. Mm-hmm. And then it will find the password validation uh, function. Right. And then it'll take those two things and it'll be missing your input password and it'll just test that in a very generalized, ubiquitous fashion. So you can walk up to most any backup piece of software, any software that stores your hash. Mm -hmm. And then if it's not obfuscated, even if it is obfuscated, a lot of the time you'll find something that's password stored in variable and then function called password validation. Right. You put those two together and... You've got something at least to look at at that point. Well, then you just fire it and you brute force it. Right. And you can push it maybe as a piece of malware that just goes out to systems and then it'll just keep going until it finds something and then it'll phone out. Right. It'll, eventually, it's just going to spew back a list of passwords it's, it's figured out from the hashes on a given app. Yeah. And so it's IP address, app, password, and maybe that's uh, something critical. Maybe it's something not critical. Right. Yeah. You know, actually assessing that is a is a hard part of it. I just feel like if somebody really is targeting you and your software, you're going to have a tough time fighting that. Sure. It's the general, you know, I, I always look at the sort of uh, the club scenario. I put a club on my car. It doesn't make my car impossible to steal. It makes it harder to steal than the guys next to me. Yeah. And that's enough to keep me safe. And that's why I went with the monogram of digital bodyguard, mm-hmm. where it's like, I can help defend you. You're more defended than you were before I showed up. Right. And presumably that makes you less of a target than others. Yeah. But if like 300 three-year-olds with hammers shows up, like that's still a problem. (laughs) And a great visual too. (laughs) They're hitting each other as much as you. Yeah. You should get more than one bodyguard in that case. (laughs) So uh, let's talk about your classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are taught on site or? uh, Often. Often. Um, it's more a client that wants to harden and then the classes are but more, it, is it usually pre, you know, preemptive is the word, but are they usually preemptive measures that are taken or most of the time they've had an attack and now they want to get smarter about it? Um, most of the time when they've had an attack, it's when they call me, it's more of a ongoing attack that they can't shake off. Yeah. And so every time they try and do something to beat it, the next version gets yeah. the same thing. Yeah. And so it's more of a systemic attack in that case. But yeah, I but am. You find you get a lot of clients that happen that, that come to you after they've been attacked. After the attack won't stop. Yeah. After three versions later, it's still happening and they want it to stop. Wow. Um, and, um, and then it's, it's the typical thing. Oh, they're making malware for my thing or they're stealing my intellectual property again or, or whatever mm-hmm. their pain point is again. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I do try and pitch preemptive solutions, but as we know, a security preemptive is also synonymous with that's too expensive or right. I don't see the ROI. It's only expensive once it's stolen, right? Yeah. Well, after the third version of your competing product that has your source code is released or yeah. after the malware that keeps infecting all and of your clients. How comes often back. does that happen that somebody steals your source code and puts it in their own product and sells it themselves? Um, I see a lot inside of other people's programs. And so it's like, how often do we do bad code? I see people that probably did not properly license code every now and then. Yeah. But is it, but is it really, is it really like somebody's picking out a competitor's product, you know, decompiling it, taking the code, selling it as their own? Or is it more like, oh, I want to see how they did this. I'll decompile this particular routine and use that in my own software. Um, I, I, you know, I think the former is probably a something where, you know, you'd get somebody in, in China, for for example, where, you know, rampant piracy, you know, you sell one copy of your software in China and then somebody takes it and, and doesn't even sell it. They just give it away. Or, well, no, I mean, rebranding and selling is mm-hmm. very lucrative. And um, I don't have any metrics on how often, but it yeah. does happen. Yes. Yeah, and if you listen to my show where I went to Washington, D.C., there's some great stories about people who've... In fact, one of the stories from that show was a guy who was talking about uh, Google 
was getting sued because they were taking ads, Google ads, from Chinese companies that were selling cracked versions of Rosetta Stone language software. And some of them had malware, some of them didn't, but they all had one thing in common. The tech support number for Rosetta Stone was the right number. So not... (laughs) So not only have I stolen your software, I'm getting you to pay for the tech support cost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's just balls right there. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, anyway, you know what time it is, Richard. Must be that happy time again. It's time to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And today's winner is from your neck of the woods. Oh, wow. Michael Anderson uh, from Langley, BC. Congratulations, Michael. Congratulations, Golf, Congratulations. Clap Golf clap. If you don't know what we're talking about, this is a $2,000 value of the Telerik Ultimate Collection, $7,000 worth of Telerik software. And uh, Michael gets it free just for being a member of the fan club. If you want to be a member, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, which is in the upper right-hand corner, and answer a few questions. And every year we're going to give away five grand worth of high technology handpicked by you and me. And one lucky person is going to win it all. And what is it going to be? I don't know. Yeah, we're we're uh, creeping towards the 64 core machine right now, but it could be anything. Really. Yeah, we'll have to see what happens. You know, new stuff coming out all the time. I may design a new desk, so we may have something like that. What about the deadly laptop? Just like the killer five thousand dollar laptop. Yeah, but I'm not so sure laptops are going to be in style anymore in December. Yeah, maybe a great Win 8 machine. Yeah, maybe like a workstation that's like set up with touch and gesture and big monitors and. 64 cores who knows you start to understand even though that we don't get to own it we get a lot of pleasure from building it absolutely anyway that's what it's all about dot rocks fan club that actually sounds pretty interesting and does the software that picks your random winner run as a desktop or a web app or what uh, kind it's of? a web app yeah yeah the the random ISS, asp.net yeah asp.net okay yeah ip address ha, ha, ha. <laughs> uh yeah <laughs> I'm not talking to you anymore. <laughs> uh, but yeah, bring up a great point. You could make sure you were the winner. Yeah. Or your friends were the winners. The guy sitting right next to me gets a new iPad, Actually, right? Actually, it's a very, um, it's not a digital process to, to pick a winner. It's something that, something that I have to do when I'm logged on and I see the winner get picked. So, but let's, I still want to chase a scenario. We've got a little time here. So, you know, as a guy who's dealt with a fair bit on the website of security, there are authentication mechanisms. Like I would tend to want to keep you out rather mm-hmm. than go deep into try to protect the code. I mean, mm-hmm. I get that there's layered security, but it just seems like that's not the biggest issue. There are a whole lot of other issues around this before you oh, yeah. are getting at the code. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's the that's why I package it into that kind of Metasploit module. So it's like the attacker eventually finds a patch window or they eventually find a vulnerability. Once they do, now they can deploy, drop a rootkit in 30 seconds, and now your server's rooted. Right. Now he still needs to try and get... Now he's got the ability to run executables on my machine. And now he can modify the core code of your server. Right. So I guess next step would be, go get a copy of my code, pull it down to you. Now you can get into it, start figuring out what to modify, what vector you want to do to, to exploit to get at that data, and then push it back up. Mm-hmm. If you've done it right, I'll never know. Oh, yeah. And and that's where that layer defense comes in. A, you should know when you're penetrated. Right. And B, you should have multiple notification mechanisms. You should have some hardening points where you can talk across a service and there's boundaries and each boundary is hardened. Mm-hmm. Or um, just knowing that your code's been modified, you know, unexpectedly. This whole idea of just, you know, some kind of registration service that spits back, you know, this is the key we expected here. What he's saying is even if you have one of those and he knows about it, now he can disable that too. Or, you know, everything comes down to a Boolean in memory somewhere that can be flipped on or off, right? And part of the attack is attacking and injecting in memory. So when you turn off your machine, everything's gone. There's no forensics footprints. There's right. nothing. And that only in memory is it modified. And there's there's multiple places to fight. Mm-hmm. And it's just finding that place you want to hide, how much you want to be visible, how long you want to be there, how much damage or how much effect. Yeah, in some ways, rather than mo- don't modify my code so we don't deal with that, you have a something running on the machine that goes finds the executing version and makes alterations in the executing version. Mm-hmm. And this is something I think you demonstrated here this week is oh, yeah. you know, modifying an app while it's running. Yeah, and, and it has good purposes too. Like if an app has a checkbox that you can't click and you want to, now you can. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so you give away the tools for doing that, mm-hmm. for modifying in memory. And it's all you know, free. these aren't these aren't new tools, but they've typically cost a lot of money. Um, they're not new in the sense that we did this them genre in the, of tools. The yeah. genre, yeah, yeah. They're not new in the sense of, um, but in the nineties, these all existed. Yeah. Um, but they certainly didn't exist for .NET. Right. And like when I wanted to do injection in .NET, I had to work to how do I do injection in .NET? How yeah. do I get into the process? How do I jump into the app domain? How do I walk around the objects? Mm. And that's kind of what my research is in my white papers and my speeches. Okay. And where do we find this stuff? Uh, digitalbodyguard.com. Digitalbodyguard.com. And it's and all there. I have tons of videos and white papers and demo tools. And So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. Tell us some stories from from the field about particularly challenging hacks that you've had to figure out. I mean, you, you're very smug and very like, you know, I can do anything, but I, obviously you wouldn't exist. This wouldn't be fun for you if it wasn't a challenge. So, so tell me, okay. give me some stories. Um, I guess my favorite story, because it kind of plays both sides of the field, yeah. is I had a client that was under attack and their source code was stolen. Someone was rebranding it and shipping it. Wow. And he would say, okay, in my next version, I'm going to have these features. And then his competitor would say, in my next version, I'm going to have these features. Yeah. And so it was basically a one-to-one. Like so a you day- knew it was, it was easy. It was a day late copy kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, my client was using a type of obfuscation and protection that was easily beaten. Mm-hmm. And then the attacker, knowing what uh, off-the-shelf stuff beats the obfuscation, uh, he was using a one-off type of obfuscation that wasn't beaten yet. And so... So the attacker was... Stealing a source, deobfuscating it, doing what he needed to do, then reobfuscating it better uh-huh. than the guy who originally wrote it. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Seriously. And so then it's like, well, well, where do I go from here? And it's like, well, there's that whole ethical attacking and all of this stuff. Like, if this guy isn't copying his code, then mm-hmm. if I go and attack him, then I'm doing a bad thing. Right. Yeah. You don't don't want to go, you know... The, the RIA at one point was talking about, you know, we're going to go attack the, 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 the hackers. Like, nah, yeah. that's not how this works. Yeah. You know, really what you should do is fix your code. Yeah. More defenses is better than more death. They, yeah. The more death. Like, yeah. Don't go on the war path there. And, and that's why I like it because it was an ethical grave boundary. Mm-hmm. And so my thought was, okay, I'll just go put in the time to take down that type of obfuscation that the attacker happens to be using. Right. And so I just, facilitated the community in taking down that type of obfuscation Mm -hmm. and now my client can do whatever he wants to see if that guy is stealing his code still stealing his code and in the meantime close the vector for getting the source code and improve the protection of your own code um it it wasn't that would be the way to mitigate it in that specific instance uh that was where i drew the line and kind of backed out of that engagement but but yeah then and and at that point, he can start filing lawsuits, and I think it'll resolve just fine. Did did he file lawsuits? And- I really don't talk about my. That might be personally identifiable. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it, I mean, the other side of this is there is some legal recourse eventually. It's my experience in in dealing with lawsuits like that is it's like it's like winning an earthquake. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well yeah, put. Good, well put. Yeah. But, but now you have your source code, his source code, right. and you can say, okay, I can go to trial and I can show this. You, you can certainly prove the case. It's just that, you know, I've never had a lawsuit that went that well in the yeah. end. It's a lot of money. Everybody, everybody's harmed by this long term. Yeah. But the, just the basic, you know, starting off with the initial statement, you know, looking like a, a DCMA claim, just being able to say, I have evidence you have stolen from me. Stop it. Yeah. 
And and that might be enough to shake him off. Right. And it, it, you've done your fiduciary responsibility. Yes, I did pursue this. I proved it at this point. Now we can sort of assess what we want to go do from here. Because legal recourse is usually not that good. Yeah. And and I do make some um, demo examples mm-hmm. of how me and my knowledge and thinking outside of the box can facilitate uh, a defense. And um, kind of my quote is, the best defense is a good sniper. And so... Uh. When, like, you have someone decompiling your code, there's actually arbitrary code execution that happens inside of Visual Studios. Right. And so someone decompiles your code, you can run arbitrary code on them for that. In other words, you can attack the attacker. Yeah, you can You can put a poison pill that only when decompiled will this activate and start pinging home, will it right. start DNS tunneling, will it... Yeah, and no, at least a notification, somebody's decompiled me. Yeah. This is serious warfare. I mean, yeah. if you think about it. And, and I... I know a lot of the things that you can do down there. Mm-hmm. And and some of them like that I publish just to show people that there are more choices. And and part of how I view this whole area is kind of like the world of AV. Like the moment I come up with a defense is the and I put it everywhere and I publicize it, it's going to get overcome. Right. If I apply it to just one person or two people, then it's good. Like someone with a lot of skill is going to have to overcome it. Right. And so that's that's why... I'm more hesitant to just be like, okay, here's a defense that works because then it's like, here's a defense that works for two weeks. Yeah. Here's a defense that used to work. Yeah. <laughs> this would have worked two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. But uh, it's also, um, I put a lot of time and research into all of this and give it away for free. I don't plan on selling the tools or mm-hmm. any of my research. And when people want defense, they can come to someone that's good at pen testing. Right. And, and, and work their way through it. I mean, there is, does need to be a certain level of obfuscation around this information just to not accelerate the war faster than necessary and it helps with the marketing model i guess it doesn't hurt yeah wow yeah you know there was a a great um story from washington dc with a guy who worked at uh preemptive solutions they have their their instrumentation code that phones home when their software is run so they put it on their obfuscator product and turns out they sold like a couple of copies in China, but there's something like 15,000 copies running in China from those in Vietnam, I guess. And, uh, you know, they did, certainly didn't sell all those. And it's funny that it's the obfuscator that people are, are cracking to protect their own code that they, you know what I'm saying? It's just irony. Yeah. Something a little hypocritical about that. Yeah. I'm going to steal the thing to protect my code so people can't steal it. Exactly. So the piraters are worried about people stealing their pirated code. And I do have a threat vector that, um, I'm, I'm feeling more, uh, socially responsible about disclosing mm-hmm. is that when you talk about your program being compromised, right? Yeah. And does it matter? You take something like a pin testing tool. Now you've mentioned pin testing. Yeah. P- P-I-N? Uh, penetration testing. Oh, penetration Sorry. testing. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I was confused by that. When you have a, a classical vulnerability scanning tool and say someone comes in and scans your enterprise or one of your ITs scan mm-hmm. your enterprise, if that tool itself becomes compromised and it's going around and finding vulnerabilities and it's penetrating computers and it's sending all of this traffic that you're ignoring. Right. And then you can leverage that penetration testing tool into a weapon against that entire enterprise. Yeah. And and it has no mitigation. It has no notification. It has no layered defense. No, does it mean you have to run two different pen testers? Well, no. I mean, not even that. But but the fact that that pen testing tool is now spreading malware across right. your entire enterprise. Yeah. And you're clearing your logs and you're ignoring the events. Yeah. And it's like, doesn't matter. Well, not not to the pen testing guy. No. But to your enterprise, and it's because of some weak vulnerability or some SQL injection or. Or some one-off case that the programmers ignored. Mm-hmm. And it's like, when you talk about securing the defenders, then you're... We should start hardening from the most critical and work our way out. Right. But, um, and and a lot of the vulnerabilities that I'm finding against, like, the financial and different stuff, I don't really want to talk about. But the pen testing stuff, like, it... It'll help the community move forward faster. If, they, if we focus on getting those things secure. And it's, there's clearly a popular set of viruses running around right now that are quite good at avoiding antivirus software. Yeah. They actually will shut down your antivirus software or they'll bypass it so that they can protect themselves. And that's one of the nice things about .NET is it's up in the high level and AV has an incredibly hard time dealing with it. 
And so you can live up at that high level and move around in memory and do different things. Yeah, the, that whole the whole signature approach to finding viruses is just not going to work with uh, with IL style code because it always changes. It, it always changes. It's different at, on disk than in memory, yeah. and it's easy to write stuff that turn that is polymorphic in a couple of lines of code, and especially the the rootkit stuff. I mean that. The first thing it does is it turns off your antivirus, disables all of the things that can detect it. If you're writing a good rootkit, you shouldn't need to. Hmm. Like, um, like say that uh, phone home software, and now I'm I just put in a different IP address that it goes to when it phones home, and I put one little piece of code that says, "Okay, get me all of the password hashes, encrypt them, and send them up." Your AV isn't going to complain. Like, get me the local file storage data that I want. Encrypt it, send it up. Mm-hmm. It's it's an extra twenty lines of code and one IP address changed. I um I got a um one of my computers in the in the studio got a virus uh, a rootkit, and uh, the only thing that fixed it for me was a program called Unhack Me. Do you know about <laughs> Unhack Me? Uh, I've seen quite a few pieces of software that try to specifically unhack. Yeah, and some of them hack. <laughs> but yeah. go on. I mean, it's well, like anyway, an AD thing. Well, anyway, yeah. what it does is uh. Yeah, it identifies and reboots a couple of times and identifies things and but it also goes through applications that it thinks might be threat vectors and it turns out a lot of them aren't but then there some of them are but you know anything that's listening for a socket you know like a VNC is obviously going to come up a VNC server or uh or some of the other ones that I have um you know just tools that communicate over the network but uh, but it it worked for me. So yeah. un- unhack me is the name of that program. It was the only thing that worked. Nice. Yeah, I thought all this was fixed. It was XPSP two. We were going to have these problems anymore. No, it was. <laughs> it's well, a lot fine. of it was a lot. A lot of it was fixed in SP two. Well, I mean, com- fundamentally, when people say is .NET less secure, it's like no, I can do this to C plus plus. I can sure. do this to Python. Yeah, we're not picking on .NET per se, other no. than it's. You know, not a well-known vector, and but it is becoming. You know, it's popular enough now. There's enough code out there that, yeah. And that's kind of where I made my name when I first started. There was really no one. Well, there was uh, one guy doing a talk on meta, changing the IL a little bit. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about rootkits and viruses and actual security vulnerabilities, it just wasn't a thing. You go talk to these companies, and it's like, well, .NET secure. We right. handled buffer overflow. Like that's only one exploitation. <laughs> I mean, in the end, the whole the whole idea that I can modify code that has privileges on the machine, it, you know, irrespective of whether it's .NET or anything else, on disk or in memory, right? Yeah, that's that's the main thing. Is once I'm able to do that, I get to control a machine. Let me ask you a practical question. I'm a software developer, and I I sell a piece of software that does some great stuff, and yeah, maybe it's a few hundred bucks. It's definitely worth hacking to somebody who doesn't want to pay, right? So, um, my software has a s- standard, you know, you enter a key, you get a license, whatever, in order to keep using it. And I want to make that process bulletproof. <laughs> Is there any such thing? Um, it's like a bulletproof jacket or bulletproof glass. Like, there's no such thing. Like, you can always buy a bigger bullet or fire 10 trillion little bullets. Right. But, um, I mean, you know, the, the kind of hardening that, you're, that you sell... Like your services for, is it going to slow people down for from doing that kind of stuff? Or at the end of the day, does it always come down to a boolean and on the disk that can be turned on or off? Yes and no. Um, you definitely can slow people down without a doubt. That's definitely easy. Um, I'm more focused on trying to defend clients against being attacked and that yeah. systemic attack making a uh, defensible architecture. Once you put stuff on other people's machines. Yeah, I'm of the ilk that says you've lost the right to say what they should do with it. Um, you, they're admin on their box. You can't stop them. Yeah. Um, and um, if it's like the difference between saying, "Can I build a castle? Put crown jewels in that castle? Make a layered defense, a moat, and machine guns outside yeah. of it and defend it?" Sure. Can I take these crown jewels and then ship them to someone's house and make it so they can't steal them? And I'm going to do that to everyone's house and anyone can try. And I have to have a scaling defense that spans the whole world. No, like, um, I can, I can help you build a castle that you can defend. I can't help you ship your crown jewels to any random address and make sure they're there. Right. Um, but I mean, I can slow them down. I can, I, I know what slows me and other people down. 
and you might be able, it's the whole thing. Like I can help you like the phone home thing. You can phone home if a high schooler is trying to hack you. But if I try and hack it, I will take out the phone home immediately and I will pin test the phone home. And well, and you also get this idea of just raising the cost of the hack to the point where the return is not there. Yeah. You know, we, you want to hack our prize draw system for that five grand uh, where the hardware and if we could make it cost you 10 grand to do it, you're yeah. probably going to give up on it. And in this threat model, if I can just do a quick Nessus scan, find a hole, do a Metasploit payload, right. drop, get in there, inject it in memory, and it's 18 lines of code. And it's like, okay, well, there's... That's pretty cheap. Yeah. Right. The, the, I mean, the real point here is, and if you wanted to work that hard, you wouldn't be a thief in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's other things to do. I'd like to make an announcement right here that as of tomorrow... The uh, selection mechanism is going to be a local app running on my machine with no network connection. Thank you very much. <laughs> Written in .NET? No. <laughs> Written in VB6. Ooh. Because it's much more secure. <laughs> well, I'm bummed I'm going to write it in batch language, all right? Batch language. <laughs> yeah, it's just going to be... Suck that. <laughs> That's where I wrote my first program, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I won a contest once, a, a Hello World contest to try to get a Hello World app. And the smallest number of characters, and I did it in 13 bytes. Echo, hello. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Well, are you bummed out? I'm bummed out. I'm a little bit bummed out. I still want to know a little bit more about uh, what can and can't be done, and especially in um, uh, in terms of securing yourself. I know that there's a lot of, you know, there's a standard procedure for accessing all your threat vectors and then... Uh, identifying them, first of all, and then prioritizing them and then taking steps to do it. This is standard stuff, but, uh, I, I just, I just, you know, I'm, I'm leaving this conversation feeling very vulnerable. <laughs> Lucky there's digital bodyguards. Yeah, that's right. Digitalbodyguards.com. Thanks, John. Thank you. It's been great. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pearlsite.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.